0: You're listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Glose, the mushroom man, my friend, Dr. Mike Amaranthus, on the podcast today. I've interviewed him before. Every single time I talk to him, I learn something new about the incredible world of fungi. He wrote a book, Fry, Thrive, or Die is the name. It's a fun pocket guide to 50 common delicious, hallucinogenic, medicinal, and poisonous mushrooms of the Western United States. He said he had so much fun writing this book, and really it's his way to not only educate people who are out in the forest mushroom hunting, but hopefully spark some excitement for those who just want to get out and explore. We talk about the Pacific Northwest and how truly, specifically, Southern Oregon is a fantastic place to find mushrooms. We dive into the world of psychedelics. We talk about medicinal mushrooms, their impact on people really around the globe. But what I get out of this interview, really what I get out of every single time I talk to this man, his love, his fascination of fungi is truly contagious. Here's Dr. Mike Amaranthus. I like your shirt. Thank you. It's very Fish. snazzy. Uh, Morels yeah. on your shirt, of course. Last time we, we talked, you wore a mushroom shirt as well.
1: I do. I tend to wear a lot of mushroom clothing.
0: <laughs> it's your life, mushroom clothing. Don't ask
1: clothing. me
0: uh, Dr. Mike Amaranthus, um, thank you for being here. I've actually interviewed you before way back in the day when i was in a different career um it's episode 64 if people want to go check it out but you really um taught me so much in that interview because i knew mushrooms existed i knew you know fungi was a thing out there but i didn't know how important it was and we've actually done a mushroom hunt together that's been documented as well a lot of fun a lot of fun that was a lot of fun that's also on my website, if you guys want to go check it out. We went hunting for chanterelles this time last year, and we found so much more. We found chanterelles, but we found so much more.
1: Right. There's a lot of diversity out right now, and it's been a narrow window between when there was enough water out there in terms of rainfall and when it's going to start to freeze. So it's been a narrow window this fall, unfortunately. But uh, we were out last weekend. We found all kinds of stuff. Hmm.
0: Okay. um. Someone asked me, I was telling them about our mushroom hunt, and they said, where did you go? And I'm like, I can't tell you. I can't. I can't. Well, tell we you. went to North
1: America. We went to North America.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> the Pacific Northwest is where, yes. is where we went right. mushroom hunting. More precisely. Um, you're retired currently, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, I wrote down, you worked for the Forest Service, though, way back when, correct? Yes. Okay, and this is where this is where mushrooms sort of entered your life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I was really a soil scientist, but um, I was doing some research on mycorrhizal fungi to improve tree growth and to keep trees from getting diseases and better production. You know, in the in the nursery and the field, in terms of outplanting success, in terms of the trees' seedling survival. So. That's how I got interested in fungi. We got some really good results by inoculating with uh, the spores, which are the seeds of these fungi. We basically water them into the, where the plants were growing and they develop these big robust root systems that help them survive. So
0: right. I got real excited about it. If I remember correctly, you were trying to either plant trees or or keep them growing and they just nothing was working, and you were doing all sorts of different things to help these trees grow. You called up a, a a pal, another scientist pal, and he basically said, "Go find mushrooms, blend them in the in the blender, and throw them on the soil." Right?
1: Yeah. Um, his name was Jim Trappy, and he was a professor at Oregon State University and with the U.S. Forest Service. Jim is still living. We actually saw him. We actually we got him out. He's ninety-two. Wow. Uh, got him. Got him out um last weekend with some buddies and i really enjoyed his company he's been publishing papers on mycorrhizal fungi since the 1950s so the 50s the 60s the 70s the 80s the 90s 2000 2010s and 2020s and him and i just wrote a uh, paper on um, fungi and climate change and how um using micro using mycorrhizal fungi in like agriculture can help ameliorate climate change. So s- Jim is still pumping out manuscripts at 92. He's he's quite the, uh, quite the personality and a great scientist, but he's the one that got me interested back in the 1970s. And he basically said it was certain kinds of mushrooms. You can't use them all as spores, but he said to gather them and put them in a blender or make a suspension out of them and water them in. And you'll get mycorrhizal root systems, which really made the difference in terms of the trees surviving in the field.
0: Were you sort of in that moment when you saw the results? Was it a little bit of like mind blown?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it, it sounded so simple at the time. Mm-hmm. Back then, we were trying to grow trees like corn. Um, so we're adding lots of chemical fertilizers, lots of pesticides. And they look pretty good above ground. But below ground, they didn't have any root system because they were like heroin addicts. You know, they were getting watered and fertilized every day. <laughs> they're like, they're mainlining nutrients. And then once you cut them off from all those soluble fertilizers and all that water, mm-hmm. they suffer because they didn't develop the root systems they needed to survive. So I was, I was a bit se- skeptical of his approach, but I knew our approach was wrong because we had so many disease problems because we were over fertilizing and the. Soils were getting all salty and they smelled.
0: Right. I mean, it was,
1: it was not a good sustainable way to grow trees for sure. So
0: once you figure this out, you see kind of how it worked. Is that when you really launched into researching more about mycorrhizae?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was exciting because, you know, in science, there wasn't a lot back then, back in the seventies, there wasn't a lot of published information on the role of mycorrhizal fungi and plant health and growth and everything. So it just was exciting because there was only a few people working on it and it was kind of a teamwork kind of thing. We were all working together and there was a great group in Corvallis with the Forest Service with the university. And so I went back and got my PhD and did a bunch of experiments down here in Southern Oregon. And it was a blast. It was just fun. It was, it was just fun.
0: I bet. Um, explain to my listeners, mycorrhizae, what, what essentially is that?
1: So mycorrhizae are fungus roots. So they're like the roots on the roots. So they're tiny little root threads that emanate from the root tips and they're the stomach of the soil. They're kind of the part the way the plant feeds and feeds itself in the soil. And it's the way nature you know, plants in nature feed themselves. So, if you go to a redwood stand and there's trees that are, you know, a thousand years old and eight foot in diameter and 400 feet tall, they've never been fertilized and they've never been irrigated. So, it's how nature provides nourishment and water to uh, to plants.
0: Mm-hmm. And when we went on our mushroom hunt, I was joking because you found a, a mushroom and you said, this one's no good, leave it. it. You know, you can't eat it, whatever. And I said, but it's important to our ecosystem. And I was kind of making a half joke, but it's true, right? I mean, these, the the, the fungi lives in the forest because, I mean, really they're helping sustain everything that's there.
1: Not only plant growth, but they recycle all the elements in the forest. When, if you didn't have fungi in the forest, all the litter and all the wood would accumulate and you wouldn't have any you know, recycling of that material to, to feed plants. So they're very important that way. They add a lot of carbon to the soil, which is really important in terms of global climate change. It uh, it makes a real difference. About um, 30% of the world's uh, soil carbon is manufactured by mycorrhizal fungi. So it's a big way to put, put carbon, take it out of the atmosphere and put it into soils.
0: Mm-hmm. So you said there's a short window this fall because I feel like in Southern Oregon, we haven't really had fall. Um, but once the rain comes, is that when certain mushrooms like chanterelles for instance, start to pop up?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It takes, it takes a little bit of rain. It's got to get through the forest canopy into the soil surface. And then it takes a couple of weeks for them to develop, you know, a little primordia and then eventually develop the mushrooms. But, uh, you know some come earlier in the season some come later uh, we have some winter fungi that come up but that fall period usually in southern oregon from september to november early november is the period where we have the most mm-hmm. of all the fungi and not just the edible ones but you know the, a lot of the diversity that we see in the forest
0: for sure and just on our little hunt we found so many different kinds um again that video is on my website um, but it was eye-opening to me. I probably, I don't know, we probably found six to eight different kinds of mushrooms in the forest. And then after that hunt, any hike that I have ever been on, I'm just staring at the ground looking for mushrooms. It's,
1: it's it was, addicting. It was great because we actually uh, went to the same spot that you found the, the bear's head, the herisium. Mm-hmm. And we picked it from the same log. And we took it back to the lodge we were staying with, and they had a little um, dinner kitchen area, and they cooked it for us as an hors d'oeuvre before dinner. It was just delicious.
0: So on that hunt, we, I think, in the video, um, I think initially we thought it was lion's mane.
1: Yeah, it's related. It's in the same. It's in the same genus, but a different species. Lion's mane is more compact. The bear's head mm-hmm. is a little bit. But some people call all the hericiums lion's mane because they're so closely related but Mm -hmm. it's really bear's head it's more open and there's even one that's more open more beautiful it's called the comb herisium and it looks like a white christmas tree covered with snow things just gorgeous and they're all three and you can't the nice thing about the herisiums is that you can't really mistake them for any poisonous fungi so if you find something that looks like that then uh, it's it's good edible mushroom
0: that's good to know because we ate that sucker. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I wasn't going to let you kill yourself. But, uh,
0: we did invest in um, that little pocket guide you told me about. Help me. Um,
1: so, David Aurora mushrooms, to uh, not mushrooms to mystified. it's the big one. It's all the rain promises. That's in the it. Run.
0: So we were looking yeah. through that and my husband and I, and he goes, wait a second. That mushroom wasn't lion's mane. This It was bear's head. And he, and we were like doing our own little research on this mushroom we found, but yeah, you have a picture of that. Um, I sent it to you, but huge mushroom, we cleaned it up and we sauteed that bad boy with some butter and oh my goodness. So tasty.
1: Yeah. That book is great. David Aurora's book is a classic and it's really good for our area. The problem is, is that it's 35 years old and mm-hmm. i actually, this thanksgiving and i'll be coming out with a book called fry thrive or die and it's <laughs> a segue. pocket field guide. it's a pocket field guide and it's a way it's the way for people to distinguish it's the got 50 common mushrooms in the pacific northwest um that are either delicious edibles medicinal and or uh, hallucinogenic or poisonous so Those lions main that lions main group is in there, but it's the problem with David is that a lot of the names have changed. And back 35 years ago, they didn't know a lot about the medicinal qualities of mushrooms. A lot of that research has happened in the last couple decades, so I included a lot of that in the book. And we've learned more about which mushrooms are poisonous and which ones are not, and a lot more about how to prepare and store mushrooms. um, How to cook? There's a lot of recipes in there, so yeah, it's. uh, it's modern. It's got the right names of the of the fungi where a lot of David's names have changed in 35 years that they got more information on the DNA of the mushrooms. So um, it'll be on Thanksgiving,
0: but I'm going to pull it up for everybody who's watching. Um, but yeah, it's called Fry, Thrive or Die. Get right to the point. <laughs> I've heard that there are no poisonous mushrooms. There's just mushrooms you only eat once.
1: Right. <laughs> yep. good. Right? people ask me edible and i always tell them yes but it might kill you so.
0: right so we have <laughs> in southern oregon we do have a lot of medicinal mushrooms that can be found in the pacific
1: northwest yeah it's wow. very yeah so there are some very important ones that are pretty abundant here mm-hmm. and uh there's more and more research clinical research on what exactly they're doing and we actually cover that in the book. you know what these individual mushrooms are doing for your immune system or you know antiviral or to promote um, your own antibodies to protect you against diseases yeah. and illnesses
0: yeah the your book cover i just want to read this really quick it says fry thrive or die features 50 common delicious hallucinogenic medicinal and poisonous mushrooms of the western united states this book prepares readers to hunt wild mushrooms and to serve them up and will delight the reader with stories, history, possibilities, recipes, and much, much more. And I think that was the the one thing I absolutely loved about mushroom hunting. You're out in nature, first of all, in the beautiful Southern Oregon wilderness, and then you're finding literally foraging for food.
1: It was just really fun. Yeah, and medicine. And it's really easy to make... Uh medicinal extracts and teas from a lot of the things that you collect in the woods. So um, I've come to appreciate all the things I find in the forest. They have a lot of different uses. Some of these fungi are interesting because um, some of the wood rotting fungi that you find out in our woods are being used to produce like alternatives to styrofoam, building materials. They're making leather out of this stuff. They're making tennis shoes out of the leather of mushrooms. Now they're finding all kinds of uses for the mycelial part of the mushroom, which is the, so the mushroom is actually the apple on the apple tree. And the actual apple tree is these threads that are growing in the soil and in the wood in the forest. So they're finding all kinds of uses. They're using some of the species that occur in our area to clean up oil spills. Wow. They grow them And they put them on oil spills and it degrades oil spills. Some will actually degrade radioactive materials. Cigarette butts,
0: crazy. I mean,
1: it's really, yeah, they'll decompose. Cigarette butts are notoriously difficult to to degrade, and they've got an oyster mushroom species that they've trained. They've trained it like you train a dog. They've trained this thing by slowly switching it over to cigarette butts to actually produce enzymes that decompose cigarette butts. I have a picture of that in my book, but um, so there's all kinds of applications. And then I can actually, let me just grab something to show you here.
0: Please. Is that a mushroom on your door? Yes. (laughs) I love it.
1: You can actually grow... kind of a weird example but this is mycelium i grew a unicorn for my granddaughter from the mycelium It was basically the bark in my yard and i took a culture of turkey tail that i had and i grew it in a mold and then i had my granddaughter painted it but it's super lightweight, and it's it's. You know, this was I made this a couple of years ago, and it's still together. It's still yeah, really soft.
0: Sounds like styrofoam.
1: Eddie, yeah, it feels just like styrofoam, um, and it's super light. And actually, some like for Dell, they're packing Dell computers now in mushroom mycelium related styrofoam. So what you know, starting to happen, and they're starting to make lightweight building materials, furniture out of this stuff. It's pretty cool, but the book talks about all the neat applications of fungi and some of the history. I make I make teddy bears for some of my grandkids. So it's a fun thing and I can just do it here at the house. I mean, I don't need a,
0: mm-hmm. a
1: big crazy lab, but they're making big crazy labs where they're growing it in sheets and then uh, using it for different applications. So
0: does that make you happy? Yeah. What's that? Does that make you happy?
1: <laughs> it does, actually. I mean... you got me figured out pretty well, I think.
0: The, <laughs> the idea that there are labs that are using mushrooms, fungi, in a positive way, that's my question. Does that make you happy?
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to, it was sort of, you know, itchy toes, moldy bread. You know, fungi kind of had a bad rap. And if you looked at, like, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, People feared fungi for not just, you know, easy eating poisonous mushrooms, but whether it was a forest or a park or an agricultural field, they were out to kill all fungi. And a lot of those chemicals that were used to kill fungi were not good for your health and not good for the health of the planet. So we destroyed a lot of soils by some of our fertilizations and pesticides. And we were just out to kill fungi at any cost. And. It's called mycophobia. You know, people were just afraid of, you know, afraid of fungi. So it's good to see that change. There are some pathogenic fungi. There are bad fungi out there. No question about it. But there are all kinds of really important fungi that improve the quality of life. cheese, yogurt, bread, Mm -hmm. and beer. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Stopped on beer. Wine. These are important. These are important parts of our life.
0: Hugely important parts of my <laughs> life. All of those things that you just said are very, very important and critical to my happiness. But you were saying you that
1: You couldn't do it without fungi. People I- don't realize that. So I do. And penicillin. I mean, think about people are like, oh, how do you make medicine out of fungi? Penicillin has saved millions of lives. It's a it's a crazy story. Alexander Fleming who found penicillin. He um, found it on a, you know, just as a serendipitous on a Petri dish that got contaminated. And that's how he found it. It it was an experiment designed to find penicillin. It was actually a contaminant on a plate he was doing another kind of research on. Mm -hmm. But the big breakthrough was his secretary years later found a strain growing on a pear in a marketplace. That penicillin strain that Alexander Fleming had was very effective, but it didn't grow very fast. So they weren't able to treat many people with it. He, they had some deal where they had people that, it had people that were employed by him to go out and find other penicillin strains. And some, what his secretary found it on a pear and that became the pill penicillin that was used saved millions of people in the world wars, uh, but it was serendipity that we found this important medicine. And there are all—I'd say like 30 to 40 percent of all new medicines are originally derived from from fungi. So it's an important source of of medicines in the future. And some people like Paul Stamets, he's kind of a, a mm-hmm. guru, a longtime friend and well, um- guru. Go ahead.
0: I'm glad you brought him up because I'm going to pull up a picture that you sent me of turkey tail. Um, And the turkey tail, I'm looking at it right now, and I'll put it up on the screen for everybody to see this. But turkey tail, what I've read of it, is incredible as far as medicinal uses.
1: It's got PSK, which is this chemical that only turkey tail really um, provides. And that is actually like the most popular anti-cancer drug, especially for breast cancer in Asia. Mm-hmm. It's available all over Asia. Uh, all of, There's probably 50 in the last four years, 50 studies of turkey tail and PSK, and they still use turkey tail to produce PSK. So they're using the fungus to produce PSK. And it's like there's a lot of studies here in the John Hopkins, New York University, um, a lot of studies here in the large scale studies here in North America for PSK for cancer. So but it's right now it's being used all over Asia.
0: I believe um, the documentary that features Paul, your friend, Paul. Right. Uh, remind me of the name of the documentary again.
1: Uh, Fantastic Fungi.
0: Thank you. He, in there, talks about his mom, I believe, and I think she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and then he had her on a regimen that included turkey tail, and it, I mean, she was cancer-free within a matter of months.
1: Yeah, there's no question that PSK is an important cancer drug. And the other fungi that are out there, like reishi, which is also very common in our forest, um, is God been used for thousands of years? Um, for us, just the rishi is actually called the mushroom of immortality by the yeah, by the Chinese. That's so been used forever. It's carved in some of their temples. It used to be only been able to be used by the the royal families of China because it was considered so precious and dear. So
0: I put up so a picture that- of that too. You sent me a picture of that. It looks like it's kind of in a log, like it's almost like coming out of the log.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, it's very common. Um and it the casts. turkey
0: tail too, I was gonna ask you about the turkey tail. It also looks like it's growing on it's growing on a tree.
1: It grows on hardwoods primarily. So it's um really common on oak stumps and oak logs. You probably probably 50% of the people that are living in your Listening to your podcast right now, have it in their yard. Turkey tail. <laughs> yeah, it's everywhere. So any kind of old oak stumps—I mean, it's all over Southern Oregon. I—I I it between my yard and my neighbor's yard. Of course. And you I make tinctures out of it and give it away to cancer patients. So. That's
0: amazing.
1: Yeah. So I just make my own tinctures.
0: Of course. With you it, and you
1: just put a squirt in your coffee, orange juice, you know, your tea okay for morning and night it's really good good for you there. and it's uh, there's really a lot of data if you go to mushroomreferences.com that's paul Stamets' website mm-hmm. they'll list all of the recent studies on these medicinal mushrooms in the northwest so you can actually look at the actual science for people that are interested in that because and there's also some popular you know, magazine articles about medicinal qualities of mushrooms. But if you actually want to look at the research, um, it's available at that website. So I send a lot of people there.
0: Okay. Um, Let's go back just a bit before I get into some of the other pictures of mushrooms that you sent. Um, But you had a company, Mycorrhizal Applications, in Grants Pass, Oregon. And you were essentially were creating these... Mushroom cocktails, right? That were helping sustain um, plants, crops.
1: Right. Yeah. So uh, what we were growing is they're called endomycorrhiza or arbuscular mycorrhiza. And they don't produce mushroom fruiting bodies, but they produce the individual spores, which are the seeds of the mycorrhizal fungi. And we were collecting them in, in roots that were colonized by mycorrhizal fungi and we were selling them for to agriculture to improve plant performance with less fertilizer less pesticides less water and it's they're still they're actually much bigger than they were when we owned it they're still in grants pass Uh, they have offices in other parts of the country and they sell the product in 40 different countries so It's really grown. It's an important sustainability thing. And it adds carbon to the soil, which is really critical right now because uh, we want to put carbon in the soil and out of the atmosphere.
0: It's hugely important. And I just, I remember when I was interviewing you the first time, I was so annoyed. I'm like, why, why don't we know about this? Why don't, why don't more people understand and know about this? If it's truly, it just seems like this little miracle worker that could reduce water use, can reduce, um, oil. I mean, all of these things, I, I just, I can't understand how we don't know more about it.
1: Well, it's a billion dollar, it's a billion dollar industry now, which is great. There's several companies. Yeah. So it's grown. Uh, and then from like certain countries like France, they have a program where you have to grow agricultural plants in a way that's going to add carbon to the soil including mycorrhizal fungi. So it's it's the only way you can grow plants down in France. And they're finding if they can add 0.4% carbon to the soil, 0.4%, so that's four parts per thousand. If they can increase the carbon level at four parts per thousand in their soil, they ameliorate all of their carbon emissions in France.
0: Wow! So it
1: doesn't take a lot of adding carbon to the soil to ameliorate all of the emissions that we're doing with cars and factories and all the other things we do. So um, it's amazing. It's, and so it's mandatory in France. So um, there are a lot of countries picking up that and it's, it's better. It makes your soils healthier, healthier food. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, you know, no mycorrhizal fungi, you know, not tilling or just minimum tilling, adding compost cover crops, all the stuff that adds life and carbon to the soil. So it's healthy, it's better food, better nutrition. It's a win-win situation. Win,
0: so. win, win. And it keeps carbon in the soil instead of in the air. It
1: actually adds it to the soil. Right, right. Uh,
0: you sold that company. When did you sell?
1: 2015.
0: Um, And you had some... You had some companies who were very, very interested. One of them was Monsanto, I believe, right? That you basically right. gave the bird to. Yeah.
1: yeah, bird. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, let's be real. They're kind of evil.
1: Yeah, the company that we, we sold to, we really like. They're called they're Sumitomo of Japan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're very organic. They're really good to their employees.
0: They kept your they, employees.
1: They, What's
0: they, kept, they kept your employees, right?
1: Yeah, they kept all our employees. Yeah, They've added a lot of employees. They have, they have like three or four PhDs working down there. Um, but um, yeah, they kept our crew and they've added on to the crew added some other offices, which is great. So yeah, we've been really happy with those guys, but um, they're using, bio, the whole company it's Valant it's Bioscience is the North American uh, part of that company and They're looking for biological solutions to a lot of agricultural problems. So, you know, instead of spraying with pesticides to kill organisms, they're using bacteria or fungi, which are produced naturally as a natural alternative to dangerous chemicals.
0: I love it. It's so, so important. And it's just so fascinating, too. I was worried we weren't going to have anything to talk about.
1: (laughs) Well sometimes that happens
0: <laughs> not with us friends not sometimes with us that happens. um okay let me i believe this picture is the pacific golden you say sh- that's a chanterelle right okay which we went hunting for because i was dying to find them um we found a lot of white the white chanterelle
1: right there were fewer whites this year and more more yellow so hmm.
0: uh um, why is that
1: yeah, I don't think there was enough, long enough period of moisture for the whites to develop. So we just had a narrow window where it was like bone dry to when it's going to start freezing and the snow's hit. So the whites develop later, and I think it was just not conducive for that. But they're both delicious. We have another chanterelle that's really delicious. It's, this, it's the hollow foot or the yellow foot chanterelle. And it's much more smaller and delicate. The big Pacific yellows and the whites are really thick, and they're meaty, and you can get pounds and pounds of them, but the little delicate one is also the yellow is also very delicious.
0: Um, you taught me a trick last year called dry saute, because we we had so many mushrooms. I, I was like, there's no way I'm going to eat all of these in the next few days, and you said you can freeze them, and you clean them off, kind of shred them up, because they literally shred, like pulled pork or chicken, like they uh, kind of uh, shred apart. Yeah. Um, put them in a pan with no no oil, no seasonings, and they kind of squeak a little bit and the water comes out of them just a touch. And then you can package those and freeze them, which is what we did. We just opened some a while back. I made risotto, the chanterelle risotto, which was to die for. But that's a great little trick, that uh, something that you taught me with mushrooms that you can do with really any edible mushrooms, morels, for instance, you could do the same thing with those, that dry saute.
1: When you you dry saute, they tend to create moisture in the pan and you can actually pour that moisture off the pan. You don't necessarily have to throw it away. You can use that in sauces and soups. Mm -hmm. So like morels make a beautiful, that water that comes off of morels makes a beautiful addition to gravy, um, sauces, soups. You just, don't throw yeah. it away.
0: No. Just- well, I actually, when I froze them, I left some of that moisture in there. So they were kind of in right. that sauce. And so, again, when I made this risotto, all of that went in, this risotto. And it was just, it was incredible.
1: Yeah. It's really good for you, too. There's a lot of, the, the mycorrhizal fungi, they accumulate a lot of micronutrients that you usually don't get in food because they're wild foods. Right. They're outgrown in nature, so you've got all this copper selenium and you've got iron you've got these, all these manganese you get all these things mm-hmm. so you don't usually get in any food anymore because they don't add that to agricultural soils so and then all these beneficial polysaccharides and chitin materials that you know we used to eat wild foods until you know a couple hundred years ago and now we've gone to these diets that are pretty artificial so dumb it's good it's some of those chemicals in your body from wild foods, because from an evolutionary standpoint, we've sort of evolved to need that stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: My doctor just told me I need to have more selenium in my diet. So there you go.
1: Yeah. Where else are you going to get it? To
0: <laughs> uh, Brazil pressure. nuts. She said Brazil nuts.
1: Oh, oh yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Trees, trees are good sources.
0: Brazil nut a day, she said. Well, we'll solve the selenium problem but i like the idea of mushrooms a lot um another picture uh, it was the first one you sent i'm gonna not be able to pronounce this bowl boletus boletus yes Edula. beautiful mushroom um why'd you send me this what tell me about this mushroom
1: because it's one that occurs pretty commonly um around our area Mm-hmm. And it's the one that they call it porcini, and it's the one the Italian Americans really love. Um, it's got a real almondy, it's nutty kind of flavor. Um, if you travel to Europe, you can't travel through Italy and not see it on every menu in Italy and stuff. But it occurs, people have realized it occurs around here. Wow. We get a spring and a fall porcini. The, the spring one is, I believe the Rex paris. And it occurs in the kind of the high cascade areas, from Mount Ashland all the way up to Crater Lake. So that's in the spring, late spring, and then every three or four years we get a big fall fruiting you know, of and ostreatus, which is um, pretty good and they're delicious. I mean, they—I think they might be my favorite mushroom.
0: Really? Let's go yeah. hunt for those.
1: <laughs> yeah. They're they're fun. And it, in the springtime, they don't get a lot of bugs. Um, you're at high, you're walking in the woods, so mm-hmm. they're fun to, and they're huge. One mushroom can be three or four pounds. So they can get big. Oh my gosh. So you find one, you get like five meals out.
0: My favorite thing about, um, hunting for mushrooms with you is the wine after. That's my favorite part.
1: Yeah. Sometimes it's <laughs> just wine before. Just for the record.
0: Okay. It helps. Um.
1: With, it helps with the relaxation of the walk.
0: It, it does. It does. Um, You also have a picture in here you sent me of morels, these incredible morels. I believe that's your beautiful wife, Eileen, in this picture as well. Lots of morels.
1: It was a great year. This year was the best year in 10 years. That's was, what I heard. Yeah, that's fantastic.
0: That's amazing. And then um, this last picture you sent Cubensis. Cu- help me. Cubensis.
1: Cubensis. Solosky.
0: Tell me so about That's one
1: mushrooms. of those psychoactive ones. So that's a psychedelic mushroom.
0: These are psychedelic mushrooms. Yeah. These can be found in Southern Oregon.
1: Uh yes and no. Okay. Not naturally. They're they're more subtropical um, species, but that's the one that people are growing. That's the one that's in this bill that's legalizing mm-hmm. uh, psychedelic use for PTSD and anxiety and stuff so that's you can get the oh oregon health authority it's it's all supervised but they've legalized that for certain kinds of traumatic you know cancer patients that are terminally ill um so that's the one that they grow primarily for use as a psychedelic
0: so uh, mental. not just for 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 a good time, right? These, these psychedelic Uh, mushrooms are actually helping people like you just mentioned, cope with PTSD, for instance. Um, and there's lots of people out there that have stories that have basically said, yes, these mushrooms are helping me in so many different ways. Um, when that's a lot, there's a
1: lot of there's a lot of published research as well. I don't want to be, and, and, you know, really great institutions are doing that work. So if you go to that mushroomreferences.com, and you go to philosophy, which is the genus of that group, Mm -hmm. I mean, you can actually look at the studies yourself. And there's a lot more underway. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of reprograms your, your mind and reconnects your mind certain ways. A lot of the problems with people with depression and anxieties, they get in this negative feedback loop, and they can't get out. Um, And it kind of redirects the pathways of the brain. It tends to make you feel one closer to nature and and things a little better, et cetera. So that psilocybin cubensis uh, mushroom is the one that is popularly grown indoors and outdoors as the drug for, to do that. And they're, they're pretty potent. You got to be really careful that you don't, Take a heroic dose and overdo do it. it. Do it in an unsupervised situation, and that's the nice thing about the law is that it's got to be supervised. It's got to be under from a licensed per- professional. It's got to come from a licensed production facility. Mm-hmm. Um, you just, Yeah, it's not like you know you're going down and to the shop and buying cannabis or something. You've got this is a lot more regulated.
0: Well, it's interesting that you brought up cannabis because we saw the same thing with marijuana years ago. Doctors were saying it actually does have medicinal use and purposes depending on, you know, the diagnosis of someone, whether it was cancer or chemotherapy, helping, you know, bring appetites back, that kind of thing. We saw the same exact thing where people were all up in arms over legalizing marijuana and here we are, it's not that big of a deal. You know, it it so I feel like the same thing is happening with psychedelics and psilocybin, at least in Oregon we're seeing that the,
1: the difference I think is that there really wasn't a lot of research on marijuana. There's more and more research on CBD and it does seem to help in certain things, mm-hmm. but the marijuana itself, there wasn't a lot of research. Whereas in the fifties and sixties, the for late forties, early fifties and early sixties, there was a tremendous amount of research on psychedelics and that all stopped when they made it, you know, a major offense. So, um, the psychedelics um research has benefited from this 20 years of research that was done early on um so they had a head start on the cannabis industry and so they they're doing they're doing a lot more now there's probably close to 100 published studies in the last couple of years so there's a lot of research i think it's i think it's a much much better um the accumulation of data that we saw then we saw for cannabis
0: do you feel like we're on the right path when it comes to the psilocybin the psychedelic mushrooms do you feel like we're on the right path though
1: yeah it needed to be regulated hmm. and um, it also you know the problem is that a lot of these anti-anxiety depression PTSD drugs didn't do, they, they just masked the problem um, they just numb the person. To level where they don't really care mm-hmm. um but it doesn't do anything as soon as you get off you're in the same situation so i mean it's great if you're a drug company because you you know you you're supplying and medicine that someone's going to take for 40 years but it's right. really the the approach that we should be taking where a lot of the psychedelics is you do it once you never have to do it again wow you know it's it's you know it's more of a reprograms the brain or you deal with something that's causing the anxiety of the depression. So it's in that way, it's more of trying to develop solutions to the problem and not just mask the problem. And a lot of times when, for people with anxiety and depression, they get off their drugs, they're actually a lot worse, um, you know, in terms of suicides. And so it's, we, we need some new approaches to these problems because we've been using the same drugs for 30 years. And it ain't it ain't working. I don't think. I I doubt that it's the mushrooms are a panacea, uh, but I think for certain kinds of illnesses, mental illnesses, they will be found effective.
0: Very interesting. You break some of that down in your book, right?
1: Yeah, I've got a the whole. I've got a lot of those species. I got a lot of the native psychedelic species that occur, like liberty caps, that you find on the coast or. There's a lot that occur in people's landscape bark locally. They don't know if they're there. And the problem with collecting um, psychedelic mushrooms just in your yard is there are some dangerous lookalikes that there's a few that are actually deadly. So I don't really encourage people to go out and forage for psychedelics um, until they really know, you know, what they're looking for. And that's the whole tone of the book is like, you know, even chanterelles, there's a dangerous lookalike won't kill you, but it'll give you gastric distress called gomphus glucosis. It's actually been changed to turbinellus glucosis, but it kind of looks like a chanterelle. So you need to know that one if you're going to go out picking chanterelles. So the idea is to have a pocket guide with pictures and yeah. a key so you can tell the uh, turbinellus glucosis from cantharellus formosus.
0: Or everybody, everybody just needs their own doctor ammo.
1: Yeah. i have you people, i can tell you people that send me cell phone pictures of mushrooms and ask me can i eat this those people never get any better at did you do that to me too yes. i guess really get hundreds of these um uh. you gotta you gotta use the keys that's how you get better mm. or, or you know go out with people that know you know what they're looking for but right i mean i get Pictures of, you know, I'm a, it looks like poop as far as I could tell. I just lit some brown thing laying on the ground. I mean, I don't know. You're asking me to, to tell you if you could eat this thing? You know, I have no idea. It's just
0: I, brown. I think I just I just send you pictures of mushrooms. I never ask if I can eat them because I, when in doubt, throw it out. That's my motto ah, that I learned from you. Really it's, good, really so good. I'm just like, nope, not doing it. But we did find a mushroom in our yard that looked like a chanterelle and I sent it to you and you were like, no, yuck. You wrote back yuck. Right. Yeah. Okay,
1: good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> I wasn't going to eat it. Yeah. Um, Speaking of cultivating mushrooms, there are some companies, I mean, around the world, that are cultivating certain kinds of mushrooms indoors. So chanterelles, uh, lion's mane, um, all different kinds of mushrooms, they're growing them Indoors. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Is it the same as so, finding them wild?
1: Yeah. So they haven't really domesticated morels or chanterelles. Okay. But they have maitake, which is the hen of the woods. Right. That you can grow and get a growers market. Those are really good. Uh, shiitake is really good for you. That's one that's available everywhere. Safeway. Yeah. Freddy. Yeah. So that's a real good one. Super healthy. Um, lion's mane. They're growing, so there are certain ones that are really good medicinally um, that are available in stores, which is great. So they haven't really figured out morels. You know, I've been hearing for 30 years that they figured out how to grow morels, but those companies just don't stay around very long. They just—I don't think they've been able to sustain it on a continuous basis. And chanterelles have never been produced domestically. Has ever figured that one out? So does that make them more special? they're wild because they're so common they're actually pretty easy to find they look like little pots of gold out in the woods so and the Pacific Northwest is full of them I know so you find the stores people bring them in um, store to sell them so when you find them fresh at a store grab some
0: market of choice has chanterelles every fall and right now they have lion's mane
1: well yeah yeah lion's mane is good there's the native one that you can find out in the woods and And they also produce indoors.
0: The the reason, though, that, you know, morels aren't, um, we're not cultivating them indoors, does that make them a little bit more special, the chanterelles, the morels, that you can only find them in certain locations?
1: It does. It also makes them um, more seasonal. So you kind of celebrate when they're coming in. So it's a cultural thing where you get your buddies out. You know, it's morel season or chanterelle season, so kind of something to celebrate gets people out of the woods which is pretty good too.
0: I agree. Um we're going to wrap up just a little bit. Um I wanted to ask you quickly about the Rogue Valley Psychedelic Association, kind of a brand new group that's starting locally, correct?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's to educate um people with mo- with, you know, mutual interest, and it's, um, I think there's going to be some licensed therapists in the Valley, you know, for people that are experiencing PTSD or severe depression or terminally ill cancer patients, so it's just, you know, how do you regulate it, what are the qualifications, how is the Oregon Health Authority involved, it's just to clarify, you know, what's going on in the Valley, because there's a lot of people scared. You know, they're scared that there's no safeguards to this thing, that you're going to have high school kids running around with bags of psilocypes, you know, and driving cars, you know. And if you don't know, you know, maybe that's what you think. And until there's better information out there, there'll be a lot of misinformation. So that, you can go to that with their website. I actually don't know what their website is, but if you type in those words, Rogue Valley Psychedelic Association, you can sign up. There's going to be a newsletter at some point. It's just forming right now. So it's still, it's still in the formative stages, but there is a website and there's a lot of doctors, there's some doctors involved as well. So that's good. I know, you know, some doctors that are, you know, kind of facilitating the, the group.
0: Uh, the website is roguepsychedelic.org.
1: <laughs> Okay, great. Thank Rogue you.
0: RoguePsychedelic.org, If anybody wants to check that out. Um, but I think it's important because, again, uh, if you don't know, I mean, it's all about education, right? And if you're just walking around with assumptions, you know what they say when you assume it makes ass out of everybody. So it's true. So <laughs> an a- it, when you assume it makes an, an ass of you and me,
1: you've never heard that. Did you? Uh, no, but did you trademark that? Because that's a real good one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to put my stamp on it, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, yeah, we need education around this, right? I mean, it we, yeah. we need to be informed on what these are and what they do and the good that can come from them.
1: Right. I agree.
0: Um, your book, by the time yeah. this interview airs, your book will be out. Cause you said it's going to be out Thanksgiving.
1: Hopefully. Yeah. We're, we're getting close. Somewhere around Thanksgiving, it may not be on that day, but maybe a little before, or a little after. But
0: and yeah, your whole goal in writing this book was really, again, to educate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, people, yeah, collecting mushrooms is scary, especially if you don't have a lot of experience. So anything you can do to be able to tell the good edible ones from the medicinal ones, from the poisonous ones, from the hallucinogenic ones, and avoid dangerous <laughs> recipes. There's a lot of stories from local people about their mushroom hunting experience. So people can relate to people that have been out looking for that. And so there's a lot of the It's very fun. There's some fun pictures, you know, kids and mushrooms, um, you know, how, how to find them in the forest, what the kinds of habitat they occur in the times of year they occur in. So there's a lot of information in it. It's, It it was a lot of fun to write. I don't think I've ever written anything that was this much fun before. Um, So I'm having a blast with this thing.
0: You're going to create little Dr. Amos everywhere.
1: I hope it generates more interest in fungi. We we live in the perfect area for it. You can't walk 20 feet around this place and not find fungi somewhere. So it's, it's amazing. Southern Oregon is the is the hotbed for fungal activity.
0: I was going to ask you that actually, like what, um, we have mushrooms here that don't exist really anywhere else. Right.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of indigenous mushroom species and stuff. There's probably 4,000 different kinds of mushrooms. that grow in Southern Oregon. Wow. Why crazy? Why here? Uh, a lot of different plants. You know, we have a lot of floral diversity, so a lot of different trees. A lot of hardwood trees and conifer trees, mm-hmm. a lot of different habitats. You got the rivers, you got mountains, you got pastures, you got really wet coastal areas and drier, cooler alpine areas. You just got every possible habitat that you could have in Southern Oregon. So what makes it desirable for us to live here also makes it desirable for a variety of mushrooms to live here.
0: I love right? it. Go Mycelium. Yay. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, did I make the
1: book? You're in the book with your heritium, with your bear's head.
0: Yes. The
1: picture with the bear's head. And I actually thank you in the photo credits too. I think I used a couple of your photos. So yay! Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. It's be on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, some local bookstores, uh, fungi.com, Paul's website. I'll have it. Yeah. So we'll, yeah, you know, and if it, if I sell five copies, I'll be happy. If I sell 50,000 copies, I'll be happy. I really don't care. I had so much, I had so much fun writing this thing and you'll see that.
0: That's all that matters. It's
1: a little little zany.
0: (laughs) You're a little zany. (laughs) It's a great (laughs) stocking stuffer for the holidays.
1: Wow. You're kind of like really pushing the book. Thank you.
0: Well, because, well, because I really like you first of all, and um, I'm really trying to butter you up. So you take me mushroom hunting again. Um,
1: Morales for sure.
0: We just had so, we just had so much fun. And again, our mushroom hunt, um, I documented it. It's on my website and really it's, it's super educational because you are teaching me things about mycelium and the knick that was on the ground floor and what that means and that, you know, the roots look like the mushrooms, right? I think.
1: I do, yeah. Um, yeah, you heard that?
0: yeah. And that where, when you pick mushrooms, you're really picking the apple off the apple tree. So you kind of like compared it to that. We found mushrooms that, um I think we found one that was a chanterelle lookalike and you said, you know, I'm not sure, but, when in doubt, throw it out. So I learned so much on that hunt. Um, and then that's where we found that bear's head mushroom. But if anybody wants to go check that video out, it's on my website, trishgloss.com. It was just a lot of fun.
1: The, that's the thing people need to get out. Cause I mean, the book stuff and just talking about mushrooms, you really only learn so much, but when you're actually out there in the woods looking for the little bumps in the woods and the looking at the logs and actually holding them in your hand where you can see the color, you know, you can smell the fragrance of the mushroom. That's really when you learn. So I encourage people to get out. We used to, there used to be like a mountains on mushroom club in Southern Oregon. I think they met in Medford. Oh. And I don't eat, I don't know if they even exist anymore, hmm. but uh, maybe we should redo that and start that over again. Where we
0: I I would be happy to be in a mushroom club with you. I'm proudly. If we can have t-shirts,
1: and, yeah. And I was I was actually in Italy for several mushroom festivals, and they really do it right. They dress up like mushrooms for their meetings. Perfect. They dress up their favorite mushroom, which makes for some interesting conversation.
0: What a bunch of nerds! Mushroom <laughs> people are nerdy. I like it. I like it. Nerd yeah. out over mushrooms. Okay, uh, you already said this, but tell everybody one more time where can they find your book fly thrive or die
1: it'll be on amazon bards and noble apple books uh oregon books will have it um not quite sure fungi.com which is paul we- paul's fungi perfecti company they'll have it um we'll still figuring out which local merchants will have it but okay. it'll be available online and locally and we'll if you go to the fry thrive or die website which will be up in a couple weeks They'll have all the local retail places.
0: Perfect. So wait, fry thrive or die? Fry thrive. I said fly. I was thinking. I was thinking of the psychedelics. (laughs) Yeah. Fry thrive or die. Die. Yeah. Um. All the all the different categories of mushrooms, basically, what we're talking about. Okay. Beautiful. Um. Well, Doctor Mike Amaranthus, thank you so much. I'm so glad. Um. That we had this interview today because, again, the first one sort of set me up for all the questions that I didn't ask you that first go around. So I'm really excited and happy you were here with me today.
1: I enjoyed it, Trish. Thanks for your interest in this because it helps spread the word.
0: Well, you you have created a mushroom yes. nerd out of me. I'm not kidding.
1: It's good. It's very good. Wow. You'll get really hooked up, Meryl, honey. Oh, my God.
0: I'm excited. So I've only been once. I've only, I've only hunted morels one time, so I would love to, um, take another stab at it. We'll do it. You've been listening to Hungry for More An Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More An Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.